Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Blockhash, exploring the blockchain episode 282. Uh, today, I have two awesome guests from Obscuro, James and Case, here to talk about what they're doing in regards to privacy in the blockchain space and some of the solutions they are working on. James, Case, welcome to the show. How are you guys doing today? Really well. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, awesome. Um, really excited to be here. Thanks. Yeah, absolute pleasure to have both of you guys on. It'll be a very fun conversation. Um, a lot I want to dive into and, and chat about. Before we do, I'm sure the audience would love to hear from both of you. Uh, so maybe one, you guys can take turns one at a time, uh, James and Case, maybe introducing yourself and a little bit about you know your backgrounds and um, what, whatever your story may be, how you got into the space and how you kind of got to Obscuro. So whoever wants to start. Okay, so why don't you go? Sure. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, I, you know, I, I, I graduated with a degree in computer science and then I went and worked in, in banking for 10 years. Um, anyone that's thinking about doing it, don't. Um, you kind of like, you know, you get in at seven and leave at nine and then you leave and no one really rem remembers or cares. Um, but it was while working in banking that I discovered Bitcoin. So this was um, 2012, I think. And I think everyone sort of, you know, goes through the same journey, right? Any, well, at least if you sort of started back then, which is, you know, you hear about this wonderful new thing called Bitcoin and you don't really understand what it is. So you go and read a bunch of things and you're like, well, I still don't understand what it is. And then you sort of come back to it a few times. And then suddenly you get that sort of aha moment where it all clicks and it's like, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is incredible. You know, everything you kind of knew about money, um, you know, it's kind of flushed away and it's like, well, you know, perhaps this can be money. So, you know, I really fell down the rabbit hole and, um, you know, I didn't want to just sort of own Bitcoin, but, you know, I was, um, I was using Bitcoin to pay for stuff. Um, I was, I was mining. So I bought my first miner back in 2012 and, um, you know, this thing arrived from Butterfly Labs and, you know, I expected it to be this thing I could just plug in and it would mine away. Um, and it, it did. But it sounded like a vacuum cleaner. So I was like living with my mum at the time. And, um, you know, every time I go to work and leave it plugged in, I'd come home and she'd unplugged it. Like, mom, you can't do that. You know, this thing is generating money. Then you've got to kind of explain what money is to someone who's a bit older. And anyway, so from there, I, I joined R3, um, where I met James and the, and the rest of the Obscuro crew, or most of the Obscuro crew. Um, so at R3, we're building a, a blockchain called Corda, um, which, is, which is kind of different to, I guess, most of the the projects you speak with, um, Brandon, it, it's a permission blockchain. It's designed for enterprise. So it's in use by sort of banks and insurance companies and telecommunications and that sort of thing. And it's it is the the most you know successful blockchain in that particular space. And that's where you know we all met. And you know from there, I guess sort of our love of um, uh, of public blockchain um, or you know the the, the, the open space um, never really went away. Um, so this is kind of how we all landed together building, you know, what is now Obscuro. Um, you know, in between all of that, I founded a bunch of startups doing various things. Um, but I'll, I'll hand it over to James. He's got a way more interesting story. Awesome. <laughs> Good. Goodness. So you've set me up. Um, well, I, I started actually as a, uh, an engineer in a bulldozer factory in Japan. Uh, that was my first job. But uh, I got into software and I got into the internet and I did some startups in the internet space. And then I did some banking uh, for 10 years at Barclays. Um, and that's where I discovered, uh, let's call it blockchain, uh, Bitcoin, then Ethereum at the end of 2014. Um, 
and like Kate, I suppose I was blown away with with the possibility of changing the world. It also appealed to my libertarian streak, um, my dislike of, of sort of rules and bureaucracy. Um, and uh, so I joined R3 just as it was getting going and uh, helped design Corda um, ended in a management job actually, which, which, but I'm a startup person and I was keen to get back into the space. Um, and of course, as Kay said, you know, love of uh, Ethereum and that community had never gone away. So um, Obscura in some ways is, is bringing the permissionless space and the community and the approach together with uh, privacy and encryption, some of the things we were looking at um, in the enterprise space. So maybe we'll get to talk about that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for you guys both, I don't know if it's, you know, the same or individually a little bit different, but, uh, you know, blockchain is a very diverse space. There's a lot of things that are going on um, and publicly on chain. Uh, why get into the privacy aspect of it? Was there like something in particular that made you think, you know, that's a part of the space you want to work on a bit more? Was there like an experience you guys had um, in relation to privacy, something that you guys are just passionate about? Was there like a, a driver for wanting to get into that side of it? Uh, yeah, I guess we're going to have different answers. Um, um, Probably. You know, from, from my perspective, I, I guess there's two angles to this. One is uh, I mentioned a libertarian streak, and that's, you know, I, I'm kind of at the crossroads in some ways because I understand the need for regulation, and I worked in a bank, and I could see why it was useful in certain cases, uh, provided it's, you know, it's efficient and effective. But um, but I also think privacy is a right. Um, and and privacy is a right, and it has to be upheld, really. The, the, the case will talk, I think, a lot about uh, what happens when um, privacy doesn't exist, you know, the ability for, for corporates to abuse individuals. I think we see that a lot with Web2. Um, so part of the motivation for me is is uh, to preserve that. Um, and part of it is actually, it's kind of more commercial. It's it's that with privacy, there are the possibility for adoption is of blockchain ideas, uh, smart contracts, uh, applications on blockchains is much greater both because the, you know, the majority of users, future users will want privacy for, for example, financial transactions, and partly because there are whole new applications that can be built with privacy. Case. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's, there's, there's a pretty straightforward answer. And, um, you know, as well as the whole sort of libertarian angle, it's, if you just look back at the the history of the internet, things only really took off in a big way once we switched from HTTP to HTTPS. And all that really was, was, you know, a way to keep your internet traffic encrypted. Now, sure, you know, all your data arrives on the other side and you have no idea what those servers uh, are doing with it. But fundamentally, just having a layer of privacy is, you know, a foundational building block, right? And I guess, you know, we're of the belief that until we sort of go from HTTP, which is, you know, what we're largely in today in the blockchain space to HTTPS, you know, we're not going to see this explosion um, of, um, of new use cases or new dApps that can be built. 
Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot that can be applied into this space, you know, when it comes to privacy. Um, with Obscuro, what are some of the things you guys are tackling and, and working on in particular? Okay, do you want to uh, take that? Yeah, sure. Um, and excuse any background noise. Um, no uh, yeah, one of the pitfalls of working at home. Um, so the things we're working on, the things we're excited about. So I guess, you know, for now, it's about sort of tackling, you know, what's there within arm's reach, right? So, you know, if we look at the, the key verticals in the space, we've got DeFi, we've got gaming, we've got NFTs, and, you know, we've got all of them coming together to sort of, you know, form what might be the metaverse. Um, and I think, you know, across those verticals, some really cool things you can do once you add just a bit of privacy. So here's an example in DeFi today. Um, take a dApp like Aave. So they've done a really awesome job of, you know, creating... Um, basically uh, a protocol that allows peer-to-peer um, uh, -peer lending and borrowing, right? So liquidity providers come along and they deposit their assets and the protocol then handles um, others to come along and borrow these assets because perhaps they want to short the assets or use it in some other protocol in some particular way. But it kind of manages all of that. It manages all of the risk, which is really cool. But as part of that, there's this risk of being liquidated, right? Which is, you know, I go on and I um, I want to borrow some, uh, you know, so let's say some DAI or something. So I want to borrow some DAI. Now to borrow that DAI, I need to provide some some capital, right? To collateralize you know, th this position. Um, and what happens is, you know, given all these positions are out in the open, is liquidation hunters will go out and they will scan these protocols and they will find people that are sort of, you know, close to liquidation. And particularly in like a bear market like we're in today, um, where liquidity may be low, they'll come in and they'll just move the market um, for a particular coin and they will just liquidate people en masse. Um, and the reason for that is because it's all out in the open. But with something like Obscura, what you could do is you could take Aave as it exists today, have it operate in exactly the same way, have it, have you know, have the same level of transparency, except liquidation levels. Let's just keep those private. So you could just program in with a few lines of code, liquidation levels are private, and they're only exposed once they actually get hit, right? And that then removes this incentive for people to sort of go around and just liquidate people, you know? So, you know, there's this sort of like, you know, there's this idea where, you know, these tiny changes effectively um, result in much fairer, safer protocols. Um, and, you know, things like like gaming, for example, there's there's loads of cool things you can do there. So there's this kind of move towards trying to put things on, uh, put, put more and more game mechanics on chain. Um, but the, the, the difficulty there is that um, games have things that need to be kept hidden. Like, you know, if you're playing StarCraft, for example, you need to keep the map hidden. You need to keep players' locations hidden. And you can't do that when there's no privacy, right? So, you know, I hope you see where I'm going here, which is, you know, it on the one hand, you have this sort of amazing sort of, you know, libertarian view of privacy and, you know, being able to, to keep things hidden um, because it's your, it's your right. But at the same time, you just have these really neat practical usages of privacy that just create a much better user experience for everyone or unlock new use cases. Yeah, I, I would add to that. Um, you know, another thing we've been thinking about is is maximal extractable value. Uh, and I know a lot of people have been looking at this for the last uh, couple of years and come up with different solutions for it. Um, but, you know, I think we take a fairly ab abrupt view that 
that if, if someone is extracting value, then someone is losing value. It's a kind of a zero-sum game. And the people that are losing value are users. And um, we worry about users and, and the value that they are losing. And I think you know, we see a benefit in, in moving some smart contract execution into an encrypted space like Obscuro, being able to, to build fairer exchanges where user transactions are encrypted and it's simply not possible for sequences to, um, to to extract value from them by being able to observe them. So it, you know, that that space, that that let's say that business, because it is now a business. I think uh, you know I've seen figures quoted over the last couple of years of a, a billion dollar business. Um, and and uh, frankly, personally, I feel it's unfair. So so that's uh, you know a fight I suppose we want to have. We want to champion. Um, uh, retail users that they're not taken advantage of. Um, and then the final thing, you know, I'd mentioned, we have corporate backgrounds. I guess anyone can look up our backgrounds and, and see that. We know that there's a, let's say, a, a world of, of an enormous world, a trillion dollar world of, of corporate activity. A lot of that can't come onto public blockchains because corporates have this duty of care around data uh, they have an obligation to maintain privacy. Um, and so far, we haven't seen much corporate activity on Ethereum, I don't think, not because of the public nature of it. Uh, I think uh, a solution like Obscura, the Obscura network, is, is going to provide a safe haven for some of that corporate activity. Yeah, that last point you make about, you know, the corporate type of uh, activity, data, information, you know, going on a public blockchain, you know, potentially does become a huge issue and is probably why it doesn't, you know, um, yeah. integrate so well with Ethereum. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense. So would Escuro, um like kind of be a layer two in that sense, like on top of maybe Ethereum where you can leverage NFTs or a different token or a different or smart contracts in a certain way, or do you need to use a privacy blockchain or is this a way around it? Okay, so I'm looking at you. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start. So uh, yeah, we are uh, planning to structure, uh, we have structured um, Obscura as a layer two, and okay. there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but I suppose the most fundamental is we want to be part of the Ethereum community. Um, <coughs> We, we we want to stand on the shoulders of, of a giant and we see uh, layer two solutions as let's say a, a mandated or an approved way of um, of adding to the capabilities of Ethereum. That's the right way to think about it. Um, I mean, obviously most layer twos to date have focused on providing scalability for Ethereum. Um, and, and that's probably why, you know, the Ethereum, uh, you know, the, 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 the original thinkers for Ethereum are so um, so keen on their, their layer two model and layer two solutions because it provides that scalability thing, which which arguably is, is kind of missing and, and potentially wouldn't appear otherwise until um, until sharding was de deployed and developed. Um, so layer two is approved. Um, we had a, a choice we have uh, of being, let's say, a layer one or a layer two, but um, one of several advantages of, of being a layer two are being part of the community and receiving support from the community. Um, the ease, I suppose, of, of building safe bridges uh, with Ethereum. Um, and 
you know, we believe that I suppose Ethereum is going to be a nexus. It's going to remain a, a center point for smart contract uh, development. Um, we think the EVM is incredibly uh, powerful. It's becoming, as far as I can see, more and more established. Um, and, and so we absolutely wanted to support the EVM from the outset uh, as, uh, if you like, the, the execution environment for smart contracts on Obscura. And, and predominantly, actually, to allow existing applications to be ported with, you know, uh, zero friction or close to zero friction. Yeah, I think I think that last point, James, is is key to what we're doing, really. Which is, um, you know, like like James says, um, we want to leverage the great Ethereum community, um, all the liquidity that exists on Ethereum, um, the battle-hardened developer tooling, the EVM itself, um, and you know, one of the things we're doing is ensuring, you know, we don't move away at all from the from the EVM experience with the Ethereum experience. So, you know, if you're a developer, you can take your existing Ethereum DAP or your EVM based DAP and you can redeploy it onto Obscuro. Um, you can redeploy it out of the box, in fact, and get an entirely private version, an entirely encrypted version of whatever app it is. And then as a developer, you can change a few lines of code to say which bits you want to make public. And if you're an end user, you know, you don't have to download, um, you know, wallets, new wallets. You just continue using MetaMask, which if you're, you know, tied to the tied to Ethereum, it's, is, is what you're used to. So I think, you know, that sort of, you know, removing all friction was like another big goal of, um, of Obscuro, as well as being an NL2 on Ethereum. Absolutely. Um, you know, with privacy, um, especially in, in this space, it, it gets quite a mixed amount of characters. You know, sometimes privacy is used uh, for a lot of good things. Sometimes it's used for a lot of bad things. And that creates sometimes some issues with platforms and exchanges and, you know, places where um, you get access to NFTs or tokens or, or dApps. Does that create any kind of friction for you guys, knowing that some of those platforms are a lot more picky? when it comes to privacy-based protocols and privacy-based uh, solutions? Have you guys had any issues there trying to integrate? Uh, we haven't had any issues yet, but um, you know, I think we're aware of, of some of the, the direction of travel of, um, in, in this space. And, and obviously there've been some headlines uh, recently um, around the use of privacy technology uh, and, and how that sort of intersects with uh, regulation and law enforcement, and we, we do we do think about these things a lot. You know, I think there are there are different approaches um, that can be taken, and um, and this is probably where this conversation gets a bit possibly a bit controversial. You know, so one approach is um, to ignore it, um, and and that means you know run as an anonymous project with anonymous uh, developers. Um, and lit and and to 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 not pay any attention or or maybe pay attention to but but not actually act on you know any of any of the sort of the smoke signals that uh for example regulators are trying to send and uh, you know i'll let i'll let sort of case jump in but i i think we are not of the ignore it mentality um you know we we want to succeed we want this to be adopted and, and usable and we want it to be around in the long term um so we have to think through how we coexist uh we have to take a view i suppose on where we think 
um, the space is going relates to to regulation. Uh, and, and before I hand over to Case, you know, I'll, I'll say that I think we're going to end up in a, uh, a bifurcated uh, model of world where there there is a sort of regulated half and there's a, an unregulated half, and and there'll certainly be lots of people who want to remain completely unregulated. Um, and, and, and they will use their ingenuity to work around whatever controls regulators try and apply to them. Uh, you know, I'm absolutely convinced of that uh, based on understanding the types of people that are involved in the space. But then there's another set probably who, who say, well, uh, uh, for example, if, particularly if we want to um, tackle some use cases like corporate use cases, um, regulation is kind of immovable. You can't simply circumvent it. Um, and there's still opportunity there with regulation. Um, Case, what do you think? Um, I, th I think some some aspects of regulation actually help open up the space, um, in particular things like KYC. Um, so today, you know, if you go to a, a DeFi protocol, it's very very hard or impossible to prove, um, you know, who you are and you're in a position to pay back whatever loan. So as a result, you have to over collateralize, right? Um, and perhaps, you know, if you were able to prove your credit history or prove who you were such, you know, such that, you know, if you didn't pay it back, there'd be, you know, some sort of repercussion, then, you know, that could open up the space massively, right? But the problem is, is that everything's out in the open, it's all transparent. So I'm never going to go through any sort of KYC system and then interact with a transparent protocol where everyone can see who I am and how much I've borrowed, right? No, no, no one will ever do that. So I'd always say that, you know, privacy is a prerequisite to something like KYC, which then opens up the space massively. So I can, you know, in some respects, see, you know, KYC slash regulation and privacy going in hand, going hand, going hand in hand in a really powerful way. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird because, um, you know, we think uh, maybe some people think, well, regulation and uh, privacy are sort of natural enemies or there's a tension between them or something. But um, a lot of regulation actually supports privacy. Uh, and I suppose the classic example, which we're super aware of in, in Europe, is GDPR. Um, so, you know, there's this, there's this sort of <laughs> maybe slightly sort of schizophrenic uh, approach by regulators in terms of privacy. Yes, they want uh, privacy as a right for users and individuals, but they also want to be able to monitor for criminal activity. Um, and as Kay says, if there is a creeping tide of regulation and, and, and KYC, for example, sanction screening, then privacy becomes more important, not less important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you made a good point there about the GDPR. I actually didn't even think about that in Europe. Um, you guys, because I'm based out of the U.S. and, you know, some of our rules and regulations are, you know, vastly different than the way you guys crack down on things like that with privacy. Uh, in Europe, is, is that something you guys had to pay a lot of attention to? Has it shaken things up in terms of how you roll out a new uh, product or use case? Uh, I would say not yet. Um, and and because we are still 100% focused on the Ethereum space, um, and we're following Ethereum norms uh, in terms of you know the the protocol and the and the how we how we identify users through you know. Uh, public key and address and stuff like that. So there's no difference there. We, we also are not maintaining data. It's, it's really important to say we're developing a protocol. Um, 
uh, we're, we're not storing and managing users' data. So we absolutely don't want to go anywhere near that. Um, you know, our ultimate goal is is full decentralization. Um, but um, so so not not directly, no. But but you know, we are aware of it, and we've we've seen regulation being, let's say, misused, misused to the extent that some of the controls put in place are, are, are really ineffective. And I, and I have a pet peeve, I guess everyone probably does, but, you, you know, one of the impacts of, of regulation in Europe is the requirement to confirm that users are happy with cookies. So now every site I visit, I have to accept a cookie and then my browser immediately deletes it. It's, it's a sort of treadmill of pain. <laughs> it's oh, one of those controls that just doesn't, in my mind, work properly. Yeah, I've, I've seen those a lot too when I'm browsing and does it get a little bit of annoying because it pops up on like every single website. And I'm like, why can't you just like answer a couple of questions in your browser and have it like auto like ask and yeah, yeah, fill those yeah. questions or something? Like there's got to be an easier way to do it. It's but, just but, but for your listeners, I should add that I've got a browser extension <laughs> that automatically accepts cookie requests. But, <laughs> but, but you know, the, the point is, it's so easy to, to sort of game the regulation that it's entirely ineffective. And the only people that are inconvenienced are, are let's say, you know, honest users. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Last big question, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I want to touch on KYC. I know, Case, you kind of mentioned it briefly a little bit earlier. Um, you know, it's such an integral part of our system in the world today and for good reason, but also, you know, creates some issues. And it's hard to plug in privacy when you're trying to do KYC and AML checks and, you know, you know prevent certain things. Um, how do you guys maybe imagine being able to plug in privacy into uh, KYC checks and things like that? Is it possible? Is there a way around that to, you know, preserve data and information at the same time being able to comply? And is there a way to do it on Ethereum? Case, do you want to have, uh, pick this up? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so there are ways that are being developed to, to do this, really compelling ways, in fact. Um, there's, some, there's, some, there's some work being developed right now where, you know, if you sort of think about, you know, a, a KYC process, it, it's about sort of proving various things about yourself. And those bits don't really live in one location, right? You know, your credit score lives over here, your address might live over here, and your driving license record lives over here, and your passport's over here. Um, yeah, all of these, um, all of these, um, uh, all these data points are available to you, right? Like, or, or to me, I can go on and I can log on to, you know, the DVLA, DVLA website in the UK, and I can look up, you know, my driving history and how many points I've got and all that sort of stuff. And then I can log on to Experian and see my credit score. But what's difficult is proving that these things that I see on my screen, um, um, are sort of, you know, oh, well, actually, let me put it another way. So, you know, I, I can see this on my screen, right? I can log into some sort of web portal and I can kind of see, you know, the, these, these data points. But what I can't do is prove that to you because these providers, right, are not on chain. So how do we get these providers on chain to start, you know, providing those fundamental KYC data points? And there's some really cool work going on at the moment where, you know, there's this there's this ability to extract that data using the technology that we've developed, um, that, we, that we're using inside of Skiro, trust execution environments, to prove with absolute certainty that, you know, my 
driving record really came from the DBLA website or my credit score really came from the Experian website. And all I have to do is kind of log into these at home and start extracting these bits out. And then I can compile these into a wallet, right? And I can then serve up these data points. So I don't have to serve up the whole thing. Like, you know, I go into a website and someone wants to, you know, wants proof that I'm not a US citizen, for example. So I can prove otherwise. I can prove that I'm a British citizen or something like that, right? Um, and I can serve up just that one data point, right? And I can serve it up in such a way that it just, you know, it's either a yes or no, am I a US citizen or not? Um, and, you know, you can build this sort of incredible technology, right? That, that, that does all of that. And I, I guess sort of the, you know, the next part of that then is, well, you know, if I take all these sort of data points and, you know, contained in my wallet um, and share them with others, you know, how do I do that in a private way? And that's kind of where Obscuro comes in, which is I can then talk to a protocol. I can share some component of my identity um, such that that protocol is satisfied, but nobody else needs to be able to see what those inputs were. Right. So, you know, that's kind of stuff that's being built at the moment. And, you know, and, and, it, and it's something that would be great on Obscuro. So I think, you know, some, it, you know, it's, it's known as decentralized identity, right? And um, I think that'd be a great use case for Obscuro. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, I don't think it's, it's there yet. Um, but being able to build KYC solutions and have that as part of this landscape is entirely possible in the, in, in, in the near future. Yeah, definitely. It's a very interesting and also probably very important application at some point to have, you know, along with having an identity that's somewhat private as well with some anonymity to it or um, some kind of passport or identification you can take with you internationally or um, or uh, domestically. I, I, I bet there's a lot of cool use cases for that kind of stuff. Um, as we start to kind of wrap it up here, what are some things that you guys are maybe excited about that are coming up, you know, on your guys' roadmap that you're working on? Are there any uh, developments or products or um, things you're planning to release by the end of this year or sometime in early next year? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, super focused at the moment. We've got um, a test net uh, that's uh, running. We've got people building applications on top of it. Uh, we're working towards a production network um, uh, probably uh, in the first half of next year. So we'll probably take it through a sequence of stages to make sure it's it's safe and robust and it's properly audited and all of those things. And I guess for those that are building, you'll know that some of this stuff just takes time. There's a lead time. Um, but it, you know, we, we have a, a, a vibrant community. I guess Case will talk about that very quickly. Uh, and the community is keen to build. And that's really important to, for us to, to validate uh, the concept, validate the utility of, of privacy. Um, and we're working with a number of partners at the moment uh, that already have experience running uh, or, or building uh, applications, distributed applications on, on other L2s and L1s. Um, and we're super excited to be working with them because they understand you know, the power of privacy and what this is going to bring to their users. Uh, but of course, they've already got the experience and the user base. Case, do you want to touch on community and, and some of those um, app builders? Uh, yeah, not much else to say, really. It's a, it's, a, it's a vibrant community and it lives on Discord. Um, and any of, anyone listening is welcome to join. It's, um, yeah, it's a pretty cool place with some really good ideas. Um, uh, I, in terms of sort of like, I guess, dApps that I'm excited about, we have um, one partner building out a prime brokerage solution. So I used to work in prime brokerage in banking and prime brokerage is really about, um, you know, if 
if you're a hedge fund and you want to borrow money for some complicated trading strategy, um, you can't just go to your, your local bank branch and, and speak to the manager, right? He's not going to understand the risk at all. So you go to an investment bank and they, you talk to the prime brokerage desk and they kind of understand the strategy and they understand about you and they look at your trading history and um, and then they give you the money. And that's what you know these guys are building. Um, this ability to to go on and um, and gain access to liquidity for trading, um, but at the same time understanding you know your 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 trading history and understanding more about you, which of course requires privacy, right? Um, so you know being able to prove stuff about you is is you know is crucial to to that thing working. Um, so that's what I'm really looking forward to. Um, we've had people deploy dexes already, um, which is super cool. Um, Oh, we've got the we've got the guessing game as well, which is just kind of like our proof of concept, which is you can you can it's it's a really simple thing. You you come on and um, Obscuro calculates a number, um, and it does this without anyone you know knowing what that number is. Not even the node operators, nobody knows. And then you just go on and um, try and guess the number, and it tells you whether you know you're warmer or colder. Um, so you know, which but, 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 the, key, but, the key point is that the contract contains a secret. The the, yeah. the 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 secret number is generated by the contract itself. So 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 this is brand new to the space, and it, and it's um, contracts holding secrets and behaving more like people actually. I like it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, where can people go if they want to learn more about Obscuro? If they want to join the community on Discord, uh, where do you want to direct people? Uh, so I'll take the uh, the website bit. So the website is uh, at uh, obscure.ro, um, and uh, that's the kickoff point of and, and the home for all of the links to to the other uh, community elements. But we've got uh, uh, Telegram, Discord. Most most of the community activity happens on Discord or through Discord. Awesome. What about you guys? Can you find you guys online? Uh, are you guys on LinkedIn or Twitter or social media somewhere? <laughs> Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, J W G Carlisle on uh, uh, on Twitter and um, James Carlisle on Telegram and James Carlisle on LinkedIn. Awesome. Case. What about and you? I I'm zero X Case on Twitter and uh, on Discord I'm Revelation and on Telegram I'm also Revelation. Awesome. Guys, make sure to go check out James and Case. Check out Obscuro and everything they're doing. Be sure to like and subscribe to the video if you have not already. Guys, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, fun conversation. I learned a lot about what you guys are doing, about you guys are doing in privacy and you know ways you can apply privacy in the space. Uh, so thank you for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brandon. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Bye. Have a great day. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys.